Welcome, world travelers, to Global Connections. We're your hosts, DJ Cassie Local and DJ Jada J Global. As your hosts, we're passionate in bringing you, no matter where you are, into the know of topics that relate to international social justice and equity to help bridge ourselves with the struggles of others. In this episode, we will explore and discuss the importance of equity and inclusion within post-conflict Kosovo and how civil society organizations like the Yayaga Foundation are helping to influence peace within the region and internationally. We are joined by Brakenna Abduli, a real rock star and trailblazer in the field of social justice and development for the people of Kosovo. Brakenna, welcome to the show. We are very excited to sit and chat with you today. I am very excited to be with you guys, and you are way too kind in your uh, welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, thank you. Born in Pristina, Brakenna received her undergraduate degree in management and public policy at the American University in Kosovo. She received her master's degree in international development from the American University in D.C., as well as her diversity and inclusion professional certificate at Cornell University. Um, That's a bit of her extensive educational background, um, but to me what speaks even more about Brakenna is her vigorous commitment to really critical work. Um, advocating for equal rights and opportunities for marginalized communities in not just Kosovo, but abroad. In 2019, Brakenna took over the role as executive director of the Yayaga Foundation, established by President Yayaga, a glass ceiling shatterer herself as Kosovo's first female president, the Yayaga Foundation has taken a dynamic approach to achieving their mission statement to contribute to the democratization process in Kosovo through social inclusiveness, support for marginalized groups, and creating conditions for peace in the region. Yeah, so we actually had the really incredible opportunity to host both Burkena and President Iyaga this past semester and hear her speak about her experiences as Kosovo's first female president. And I think everyone who got the opportunity to meet and speak with both of you were really uh, taken aback just by your guys' presence and the work you do. I was personally really inspired by my conversations about restorative justice with you both. So I'm so excited to dive into this. And with that said, let's, you know, no further ado, let's go ahead and get in. Awesome. So if anything is common in our global community, it's inequity, right? How it manifests may change depending on nation or territory, and it's often deeply intersectional. Scholars, activists, and leaders agree that the more inclusive and directly equitable a society is, the greater its stability tends to be. So in essence, we're glad we do have this opportunity to focus on your work and the work of the Yaga Foundation because it has so much to teach the rest of the world. So maybe we can begin with a little bit more about you, Brakenna. Um, why do you do the work you do? Why is advocating for social justice and equality, um, why has that, that had such a large place within your life and career? So, first of all, let me just uh, say again how excited I am to be part of this and uh, to join CSU virtually. It's been an incredible welcome when we were with President Yahyaga back in November. Um, uh, We loved how gracious everybody was uh, and uh, we loved the campus. And I can speak on both of us that we really look forward to an opportunity to come back. And we hope that that happens soon after this whole um, 
global crisis ends <laughs> that would be really nice to do uh, so from my end um living coming from a place that's been through conflict that's been through war in an essence kosovo has been saved and we've always uh, shared this deep appreciation uh to all of our friends like the us and um uk and a lot of uh other countries that have helped us through uh, our darkest times and the way we've generally seen development and aid has been this uh, incredible opportunity to help people and that stick with me. Um, I was 10 when the war happened, but um, I've seen so many people come and help us that it just felt like that's the approach and that's the, the thing you do. You help others and you make sure that you work uh, your hardest so that people that need help get help and that we have some sort of inclusion and diversity and equity. So I think that kind of inspired me very early and then it's the reason what got me into development and that's where that's the area that I did my master's in and I particularly wanted to work on post-conflict development. Generally statistics say that countries that have been through conflict tend to go back to conflict and that's mostly because of the younger generations. So for example my generation has bloody images of the uh, war, but they have expectations, uh, especially not like my generation now is a little bit more elderly. Uh, we've turned 30, but <laughs> even the younger generations more so. Uh, and um, they, we all have expectations. We want to have good quality education, access to healthcare, opportunities to travel, opportunities to get uh, good jobs. Uh, and generally, post-conflict countries cannot deliver that. Because uh, as you are going back to normal, and now with this crisis, we're seeing how... When you are on extraordinary circumstances, it's really hard to go back to normal. It's really even harder to deliver to these expectations. So generally what happens is that, um, especially if you have youth bulge, um, the young people who do not necessarily remember kind of how it was, um, they have these expectations and they have... Um, less tolerance <laughs> than other older groups. So uh, they generally tend to be the first ones to take measures. And uh, whether that is in the form of revolution, whether that is in any sort of um, different shape. Uh, so as I was doing my master's studies, I learned more and more about this. And um, in Kosovo, uh, our um, average age is about 30. And our youth unemployment rate ranges on the stats, but it can go from uh, 50 to 70%. So we had all the red flags of a potential um, conflict recurrence. So that's what got me into focusing on more on development and not just youth, all the marginalized groups that uh, if they are not included to be part of the change um, and to be part of solutions, uh, then um, different groups with uh, ulterior motivations can mobilize them for um, any sort of thing. 
So that's what got me more into um, inclusion and diversity. And last uh, two years ago, actually, now I got lucky. I was able to do a professional certificate on that. And that was even um, more eye-opening in the sense that it taught me a lot about the benefits of diversity and inclusion, which is not something we talk much about. Um, we talk, uh, the, generally the conversation is we have to do it because it's human rights or because we have to, but there are so many benefits to diversity and inclusion, whether that is in the um, corporate culture or whether that is in um, just overall society, public policies. There are so, and I'm happy to discuss more of this uh, more. Uh, but that was especially uh, eye-opening and uh, what I'm uh, trying to bring home as well. That was awesome, yeah. I think that there's so many benefits. I like that you talked about that, the benefits of diversity and inclusion past, you know, just the, it's the right thing to do, um, you know, that it, we need diversity of thought and diversity of opinion, that that's when we can maybe think or cross solutions that maybe we hadn't ever thought before. And there are all sorts of stats that show, like, for example, because this is harder for businesses especially to apply, but there are all sorts of evidence that says that, for example, businesses that um, have uh, gender diversity, they tend to do much better, um, up to 20% higher profit than businesses that don't. Um, so there are actually right. numerical values um, mm -hmm. kind of money-wise, it makes sense. So uh, it's not just the altruistic thing to do or the um, the human thing to do. Yeah. It's benefits, it sells. And I also appreciate the reframe around youth engagement um, with cultural change too and social change. Because I, I think in the U.S. Uh, specifically, it's harder for younger people to feel like they can engage with politics because it feels so disjointed and terrifying. How has this also kind of framed itself with the, specifically with the work of the Yayaga Foundation in mobilization and development of Kosovo? It, I got lucky because the, the goals and all the work uh, that the Yayaga Foundation is really close to my heart. So I, um, I found myself in it. It's been very recent. So I'm just, it's been, I'm in this position for five months now. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a roller coaster of a journey. It's not easy to deal with a global crisis in the midst of being new to the job. <laughs> but it's been an incredible learning opportunity. And it's the challenges that make you tougher, right? Uh, I have higher expectations <laughs> of my strength and uh, my uh, skills strengthening after this. So I got lucky to be in this position in this organization that is really close and works in, in be believes in the same things that I do. What we've done is we're especially working towards gender equality, uh, empowering women. Um, we uh, focus on youth empowerment as well, peace building and uh, reconciliation. So there's a lot of areas uh, that we uh, work in, but we try to be as grassroots as possible. Uh, we try to work directly with the people that are in our target group. And we've had um, different sorts of programs. One that we just began and it was doing really well. We had to uh, stop it temporarily and we look forward for it to come back. 
Uh, it's uh, the Mother's Calls. It's a program that's for mothers of teenagers. It's generally the whole, whole goal is to help these women uh, develop strategies to deal with their children, but also just not lose their personal identity to the identity of a mother, uh, which is generally what happens. At the same time, we help them and support them into their uh, individual goals. Connecting with that, I think, you know, so you, you guys have a lot of mobilization with it. Uh, women inclusion and restoration but also you've done a lot of work advocating for like the disability movement um which is actually really unique coming from where you guys you know post-conflict and things like that so if you could talk a bit about that that'd be great yeah so the generally speaking it's um the marginalized of the marginalized are the core of what we uh, want to do and help. So uh, the disability side, we always try to make sure that we're inclusive, that we engage, uh, for example, in our programs, that we engage uh, persons with disabilities so that they have opportunities to learn um, just as much as anyone else uh, to make sure that we have access to, uh, that our information is provided in a format that is uh, accessible. And just advocating to make sure that the right, sometimes the challenges are just very basic, like no access to public offices or like uh, objects, um, lack of access to education in some cases. So we try to be very vocal of that. There's also another group that we work with and that's really dear to our heart. And it's also been a cornerstone in the work that the president Yahyaga has done, which is survivors of sexual violence during the war. We haven't talked after the war for about 13 years. We did not talk about this because it was really difficult to cope with. Generally speaking, sexual violence during the war is used as a tool because it's supposed to send a message to the opposite group, the group you're fighting, uh, especially the men, that you are so incompetent you cannot protect your own women. So that has been used as a tool in Kosovo as well. And what happened after the war is we did not have the ability to deal with it because in the midst of all the crisis and trying to recover it was not something that we were psychologically uh, able to do and so 13 years after when president of uh, Yahyaga took office she kind of took the initiative to read to lead this to the institutional level because until then there were some smaller organizations that worked on these and uh, they really were directly with survivors and activists who were really vocal but we were not ready to hear about it so um president yahyaga led a number of initiatives then that uh led to changes in the legal framework that is now so more supportive to survivors uh to addressing stigma and uh different ways of supporting the survivors and we continue working uh with them um directly as well uh, on different projects that are capacity, related to capacity building, economic empowerment, but also just fighting stigma. Because while we've done a lot of work and we, uh, we have gone far, as far as we could at this point in this, there's still a lot of work to be done, especially in terms of access to justice. Uh, nobody so far has been convicted of wars of sexual violence. So there, there's still a lot to be done.
how open, you know, are people to, or how open, you know, were people to, uh, kind of going into, like, healing and talking about restorative justice and things like that? It took us years, and the way we managed sort of uh, trauma did not manage it, because after the war, we had a lot of priorities. Uh, our houses were burned, so we didn't have shelter, we didn't have food, no jobs. So in the midst of that crisis, you have to do everything you can for you and your family to survive. And how you feel at that moment and how you're managing your grief and loss and confusion really becomes, uh, takes a back burner. Um, sometimes there's a bigger risk of opening uh, wounds that um, have been sleeping for um, years and decades. Uh, but uh, it's the only way to move forward because it's the only way we can come to that point of um, just that mutual understanding and uh, forgiveness uh, about taking in kind of everything that happened, um, forgiving forgiving ourselves for things that were beyond our controls. A lot of women, not a lot, but quite some, um, like take their short share of responsibility for having been raped. Um, and the stigma does not help that. Uh, so um, it's been difficult having these conversations now, uh, but um, th there's a lot of work being done into this by a lot of organizations, a lot of people who care deeply about this, because, um, I mean, pr we practically left these. There have been about 20,000 women and men raped in the Kosovo War, so we practically left them um, living in the 1999 because time hasn't moved since then because we've um we've had them basically sort of stick into their silence not share their stories and now that now that's coming across now we have like there's books with stories there's uh videos of other people reading stories of survivors uh, we've had um uh, well to the other life, uh, only we currently we only have two women that spoke publicly about it. But the good thing is that they are uh, being treated as the heroes that they are for speaking out. Uh, so it shows that we um, we are getting ready to listen uh, and to have more empathy um, in this situation. And another thing that's been really interesting is that. In Kosovo, in the middle of Pristina, we have one monument that is de uh, dedicated to survivors of sexual violence. It, it's in the center of Pristina. And right across it, we have the newborn monument, which is, we put that there in, uh, when we declared independence. Uh, so the, it's actually, it actually says newborn. So it's, it's written with letters. Whenever you Google Kosovo, it will come up. Uh, but uh, what we did this year, the theme was in painting and repainting it, was sharing the stories of these survivors. So in the middle of Pristina, you have now two very uh, famous, renowned monuments that speak to the stories of the survivors. And I think that speaks also to how you, you know, you guys want to construct memory and uh, the memory of what uh, you know, occurred, especially for the next generation and things as you guys continue to develop and, you know, 
restore and things like that. Thinking about global engagement, um, I know you guys do a lot of work, and that's what we were talking about earlier, just gender-based violence in general and advocating um, for that in Kosovo. But how have you guys, how's the Yaga Foundation and your work informed the work of advocates in other countries? Um, I don't know if you guys know of all of that and could speak to that. Last year, we had an um, international conference about giving voice to survivors of sexual violence. So that was our way of kind of engaging, not just the region, but beyond into a conversation that's really important. Um, at the same time, it's uh, we try to use every opportunity to, we can as a learning opportunity in terms of... Uh, not just us receiving new information, but also sharing information. Uh, a lot of work has been done in Kosovo, especially in terms of uh, gender-based violence, and especially in empowering survivors of sexual violence during the war, that uh, has been used as a best practice in other countries. So uh, we try to keep the communication going uh, with uh, all entities that we um meet and come in contact with and share what they've learned and try to see how they've managed different situation because um they in this there's immense learning opportunity something that works in the u.s does may not necessarily work in kosovo but there are ways to alternate alter it to uh, culture to uh, circumstances that could be a good solution to uh, an issue that we face definitely And if anything, just start a dialogue. Yeah, and just have this uh, sort of support system that I think is really important to have for any sort of NGO. But just like uh, with globalization, we're not alone. Like we're all of this together. Uh, Something that happens somewhere is no longer just the problem of that place. It, It finds its way to come to you and become your problem. Um, like wars, we've generally treated them as uh, problems of the countries where these happen. But we're learning more and more that um, they can cause all sorts of refugee crisis in your own government, in your, in your own country, because people leave, flee the uh, war and they come to you and now you have to manage that situation. So we're, we're not alone or country by country basis. We're, with globalization, we've pretty much become one and um the more we learn from another and are are, uh, welcome each other's ideas and solutions the better off all of us will be you know being at a time of such such a known i think we're in a shelter in place drill here in the u.s uh for over a month now and the same is occurring for you all in kosovo um i'm just curious you know how is this shifting the work that you all are doing at the yaga foundation and is it shifting and if so in what ways um yes it uh it has introduced us to working from home which is not as exciting as i thought it would be (laughs) (laughs) it's just i i always some it was uh, something that i always wanted to do and i idolize it as like um you would have the time to do everything and that you could balance it like work and fun and no not really uh, so um from that end uh we've all we've all learned kind of um a important lesson here and a higher appreciation for our office <laughs> i mean physical office 
so um, we've uh, we've been working from home uh, mostly. Uh, we're trying to uh, have our communication open with the people that we work with directly. So that's um, that's been easier by uh, that's been made easier uh, by all these uh, tools that enable uh, virtual communication, whether that is uh, applications like WhatsApp and uh, Viber or um, Skype or all sorts of ways uh, to keep the communication going so that we always are up to date and we learn what's happening on the ground. Uh, but at the same time, it's also um, kind of uh, put us into limitations because uh, uh, we can't continue. A lot of our work was face to face. So now we can't, we couldn't, we had to stop that and uh, change that into campaigns, uh, into uh, um, basically communication with uh, our beneficiaries uh, so that well, we do these needs assessments and we um, find ways, find things that they need immediately and we find ways to support them. So uh, we're trying to be all sorts of creative here. Uh, to manage the situation um, and hopefully uh, hopefully it will end soon and we will be able to go back to some sort of normal uh, but uh, until then we're trying to manage it this way as we kind of wrap up uh, we usually do this thing where we leave our audience with some last takeaway or some piece of advice for the work that our guests do so for those who have now had the chance to learn about what it is you and the Yaga Foundation get to do, what would you like them to carry with them uh, as we end today? So I would say that we all have an opportunity to uh, make a difference, to do something that um, has a direct impact into somebody's life. And it doesn't have to be a big thing or it doesn't have to be hard or doesn't have to take you 40 hours a week. Um, sometimes it's just being open to uh, learning more about people, to kind of understanding really who they are and um, what makes them them. Because, uh, um, you know, sometimes in this dynamic world, like what happens is we, we become sort of robots um we categorize our information we get to pick whom we hang out or whom we don't based on things that we um we see as good or bad and we like kind of, sometimes our mindsets are really narrow in that sense we miss out on how um amazing people can be so maybe just kind of um have a an open mind and an open heart uh, to um, learn more from others, because it can be um, it can be very eye opening. And then take that in and um, see what you do with it. Well, thank you so much to our guest, Brickenna. We really appreciate you coming in and speaking with us today. Like we said, I think we've covered a lot of just the work you guys do at the Yaga Foundation. We're really taken with you down here at. CSU, I think on campus, having you on campus was really awesome. Um, so we're really excited to continue our work with you in whatever way that uh, manifests. So I'm really excited about that. So yeah. I look forward to um, any sort of cooperation and maybe an opportunity to welcome you and Christina. Um, Hopefully, fingers crossed. Yeah, yeah. Very yeah. excited. It, um, <laughs> we, we are, as I said, um, 
it's it's really it's a really interesting place. Um, we are very loving um, in the sense that um, like um, we are very huggy, which this uh, this situation has impeded. <laughs> this crisis has impeded, but uh, also just like very um, very warm and uh, also just. Um, even sometimes that comes in the form of having you eat too much, like mm-hmm. pushing you to eat too much. But that's <laughs> that's also part of our culture. Uh, we have amazing uh, mountains for that are for incredible hiking opportunities. Just like good um, coffee culture. Coffee is a big thing for us. Okay. Not anymore, but um, it's a. They say that Italians invented the macchiato and we perfected it. So just mm-hmm. something to keep in mind. So, uh, like this is my two seconds of the opportunity to do some <laughs> promo for my country. So yeah. Yeah, those are. Those Thank you for great. that. <laughs> no, we've heard great things about Kosovo as well. That's it. Doing some research into your country has been really awesome. I'm like very excited for the you know potential to be out there. So thank you so much for having me. We appreciate you all, our curious audience, for also tuning into Global Connections. Remember, you can always follow our show on kcsufm.com under podcasts. Don't forget to follow us on the Office of International Programs Instagram and Facebook pages, as well as KCSU's pages to see up-to-date episodes and new content. This is DJ J2J Global. And this is DJ Cassie Local. And thanks for learning with us today. The views in this podcast are our own and not the views of Colorado State University, KCSU, or CSU's Office of International Programs.